John chapter 11, you know where we are. Uh, Mary and Martha have heard that Christ was coming. Martha runs to meet him. Through that meeting with Martha, we have the great declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whithersoever, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then, of course, the huge question, believest thou this? Then she goes to get Mary. Mary comes, hears she runs, and Mary then falls at his feet. And we come to verse 33, it says, And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And said, where have you laid him? Now, he knew, but he wanted them all to participate. They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, groaning in himself again, cometh to the grave. Now it was a cave, and a stone was laid upon it. And Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. I love the King James there. He stinketh, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe... Thou shouldest see the glory of God. And he said that to us as well. Then took they away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go free. And many of the Jews which came to Mary... And had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So we come to this remarkable scene. I, you know, I think we'd all be <clears throat> impoverished to some degree if John chapter 11 wasn't in our New Testament. What a remarkable picture. And it has so much to do with our future and uh, what we will look forward to. There are some differences, but uh, we see this Mary and Martha. Mary's laying his feet. She's brokenhearted. And then he goes and he comes to the graveyard there at Bethany, where the tomb is. And it says when he got there and saw everybody weeping, that he groaned and was troubled in his spirit. It's an interesting description. He groaned. It's the word that's used for being indignant. Sometimes it's used of giving 
a commandment. It's used in the Old Testament of horses come to battle, how they snort with their nostrils. They breathe heavy. They're coming to battle. That's the idea here. He came to where Lazarus was buried, and it says he looked at everybody crying, looked at what was going on, the whole scene, and he was indignant. It was something in him. This was not right. And then it says he was troubled, which means to be unsettled. It means he was moved emotionally. There was something troubled within him just in regards to that scene. And he's the same today. Hebrews says he's the same yesterday, day and forever, that he doesn't change. And I think, you know, there's things all around us in this world that he has indignation towards. That he groans over. And certainly because he understands the import of those things, the heart of God is also troubled about them. And he said to them, where have you laid him? Now he knew, he says that for their benefit, because he wants them to come along and see what's going to happen. And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. And then John just writes there, and Jesus wept. I, I know everybody says the shortest verse in the Bible. Actually, in the Greek, it's three words. And in First Thessalonians 5, you have the sh- shortest verse in the Bible. It's only two words. You find it yourself. <clears throat> but as far as we, we, as we're concerned, this is the shortest verse in the gospel. Short, you know, what John, it just says Jesus wept. And it's the only time that word is used in the New Testament, wept. He burst into tears. An emotion demonstrated itself, and it has to do with tears streaming down the face. And it's the only time that's used. And as we look at this, you know, here's Jesus, the central figure. He's the Lord of Lords. He's the King of Kings. He's the Word become flesh, dwelt among us. He is sovereign. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful. He is the Creator. And he stands in the middle of it all, weeping. It's, it's unimaginable. It doesn't, it's disjointed. It doesn't fit together somehow. Because he's weeping in the middle of the scene. Look, he's not weeping over Lazarus. Because he's going to tell him to get up. He's not weeping over Mary and Martha because they're going to be rejoicing by the end of the day. He said earlier, I'm, I, I'm glad that he's gone for your sake. And he said, this sickness is not unto death. It's so that you might behold the glory of God. So he's not weeping because the glory of God's going to be manifest. And we look at him and think, why does Jesus stand there weeping in the middle of all this? And I think it's because of his ability to look forward He only weeps three times in the New Testament. He weeps here. Luke chapter 19 tells us on Palm Sunday when he's riding into Jerusalem that he weeps. And he said, if you only known the things that belong to thee, to this thy day, but now your walls are going to be torn down. Jerusalem's going to be left desolate. Your children are going to die in the street. The effects of sin, he weeps. And then in Hebrews chapter 5, 7, it tells us in Gethsemane, he was heard by God because of his strong crying, his fears, that he wept in Gethsemane because the sin of the world was going to come upon him. 
So each time we see Jesus with tears, it's because of the problem that sin has caused. And no doubt here, he looks down through the ages. He told them about the temple. There's not one stone here that's going to be left upon another. That was 70 A.D. He told them in the very last days where we're living, there'll be wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes. He had no trouble seeing to the end of the age. He said, when you go into the city over there, unloose the donkey and bring it. And the guy who owns it is going to say to you, what are you doing taking my donkey? You just say the Lord has need of him. He knew what was going to happen. He told Peter, go down to the Sea of Galilee, throw in your hook. You'll pull out a fish with a coin in his mouth, pay the taxes. He, he saw forward clearly. And where, where he stood here, he saw an endless procession of broken hearts. Through the ages. He saw empty seats at the table. He saw empty rooms in the house. He saw empty hearts. He saw despair. He saw the brokenness of the centuries as image bearers are breaking and weeping, looking down through the centuries to millions yet unborn that would go through this process of bereavement. He sees it all and he cries because he heard every childless father. He heard every friendless person, every homeless person. He heard every bit of heartache due to the death, whether it comes at children's hospital, whether it comes somebody dropping dead, whether it comes on the battlefield, whether it comes murder. He, he heard all of that, the brokenness of human hearts <clears throat> down through the centuries, and it made him weep. He saw it all the way down to here, Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, this morning. There are so many people among us this morning who have lost someone in the not-too-distant past. And their tears still flow. And their heart is still broken. And the scripture wants us to know that you do not weep alone. The Savior weeps with you. He saw it. It broke him. It's not his ultimate calling on our lives. In fact... Revelation 21, it says when we get to heaven, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. They're needless because he's wept every tear that needs to be wept over failure and sin. He's weeping here, no doubt. You know, Isaiah says he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He saw all the Marys and the Marthas through human history. And as he looked at that, he says he groaned. He was indignant and his emotions were moved. And he wept. He wept. He saw it so clearly. <clears throat> he saw the, no doubt, the, the victory of death. Just through the ages, you know, just man was made to live forever. It was, God said, behold, it was very good. Adam and Eve created his image and likeness. They weren't supposed to die. We don't have the capacity to deal with it. And here, no doubt, as he looks, he sees 
the graveyards. And you and I don't like walking through a graveyard today. There's something foreign about it. He sees all the numberless people that are going to be victims of death and the triumph of the grave through centuries. Image bearers that should never have died turning to dust in the ground. Humans from every station of life, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, white, black, Ukrainian, Russian, Chinese, Taiwanese, again, North Koreans and South Koreans. He saw death having its victory in all of those places. In fact, Revelation, when he tells John the right, chapter 6, verse 8, he said, John said, and behold, a pale horse whose rider's name is death. He saw it riding. It was recorded long before it happened. Now, I can't imagine, you know, we we can kind of take a look at this, but he's the one who saw what it should have been. He's the one who said, behold, it was good. It was very good. And he looks at death vanquishing, you know, human friendships and love and families down through the ages. And I think probably most troubling in some ways, he sees the rejectors. He sees where death is permanent. It says right here, there's a crowd of people around him that see the miracle. And it says some of them believed after they saw what Jesus did. They became believers. It says others went and told the Pharisees. They became despisers and rejectors. And the same gospel, the same Jesus offered through the centuries. Many will receive Many will reject. And he weeps for them. Look, was he weeping? If you're here this morning and a friend brought you, you just came to church to make them happy, or your mom or your dad, he was weeping for you. Because unless you turn, you'll see the blackness of darkness forever. Unless you turn, And his heart was broken because he saw right in front of him those that were going to receive and believe and those that were going to reject and despise. And we're filled with a world more than ever. The media, what's going on, despises the Christian, despises what we believe. And Jesus isn't just, there's not just indignation and emotion. He weeps over it. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He weeps. And if you're here today and you're not saved... You know, we have all these ideas of God. Here, the central figure in this whole scene is a weeping God, weeping Savior, weeping Creator, weeping Jehovah. And it seems so disjointed as we look into it. He's weeping, it tells us. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, look how much he loved them. You know, Filio, this was his friend. This is, the, the Jews with hardened hearts, all of them have to acknowledge the tears are streaming down his face. It was visible. And some of them said, well, could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, that was shortly before this, remember the blind man, born blind, Jesus healed him, he received his sight. Could not this one who opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? 
And you see that they're missing categories. All they do is see what can happen before you die. They're going to see on this day what can happen after you die. But they're saying, couldn't this guy who opened the eyes of the blind even kept this one from dying? Couldn't he have healed him before he died? They only got half the story. But that's their category. Yeah, he did these things, miracle workers, you know, the prophets, some of these things happened. And couldn't even this guy who opened the eyes of the blinds, you know, involved himself so this one would not have died. And Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself. There's that indignation towards all of this. He cometh to the grave. Now, it was a cave, and a stone was laid upon it. The fact that it's a cave, and then normally human work inside to etch out places, a stone for the door that would keep out grave robbers, animals that would smell the, the, the corpse and so forth. Uh, it tells us that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, the home, is of some financial means. They, they are able. <clears throat> and he comes there. And this graveyard, he had to walk to get there. It's not in the village. It's not in the city. The, the dead were unclean. Normally, it would never be on the west side of the city because the prevailing wind came from the Mediterranean and blew in that direction. So it's probably on the east side of the hill of Bethany, down a little bit lower um, where this grave is, that he walks to it. And Jesus then says, look, take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, begins saying to Jesus, Lord, by this time he stinketh. He's been dead for four days. Now, this is typical Martha, isn't it? She's the one who tidies up. She's the one who cleans. She's the one who disinfects. She's the one who takes care of everything. And she, she, she said, Lord, I understand you'd like to see him one last time. I understand you want to kind of bend down, look there, but he already stinks, Lord. Stinketh. He's been dead for four days. It's so typical of her and of so many of us. But the Lord said, take ye away the stone. Isn't it interesting? He's all-powerful. Only Jesus himself can raise the dead. But you can take the stone away. Take ye away the stone. Only he can do the miraculous part of this. But you can take the stone away. How many things are there in our lives and our families? And he just says, take the stone away. You do that. Get rid of it. Take the stone away. They're going to have the responsibility to do that. And then he's going to say, you loose them. Take off the grace clothes. How many times we get a new believer here? We have new believers classes. How many times is our responsibility if a loved one gets saved to take off the grave clothes, to unwrap them, to see them come to health? Get, they, they stunketh while they were lost and then to smell better. He says, remove the stone. Martha said, Lord, he stinks. You, you don't understand what's happening here. I did, obviously. And he says, didn't I tell you, he said, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And he says that to us as well. And it says, then they took the stone away. Understand what's happening. <clears throat> he wants them involved because he wants them to smell. They got to move the stone. And it stinks there. Body's been rotting four days. He wants them to smell that. 
He wants the people that are there to see that the stones rolled away. Something's actually happening there. And he wants them to hear. He's going to scream. It says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He could have just said, hey, Lazarus. He could have just said to the stone and it would have been gone. He wants that human involvement. And he wants to hear them to hear him scream, Lazarus, come forth. He wants everybody to hear it. Because this is something that's fixed. Look, it's interesting that smell is related to our memory somehow. All of us can, most of us can remember an aunt or somebody (coughs) that had mothballs in their closet in their house. As soon as we smell them, our minds go back to those places, right? Or somebody who smoked a cigar, you know, as soon as we, we, you know. Memory, for some reason, is closely linked to smell. Remember, my mom, my mom had seen someone fall in the L tracks and get electrocuted when she was a young girl. And she said, I could never get the smell out of my mind. It's still there. When Saving Private Ryan came out in the movie theaters, we had World War II vets say, I could smell it. I watched it. I could smell it again. I was there on D-Day. I could sit in Normandy. I, I could smell it again. It was just so real to me. A friend of mine, and I can't name him, uh, a team at Stanford University was working with memory. So they would take these rats. Whenever they wanted about humans, they do stuff with rats. You take these rats and run them through this maze because it was a piece of cheese or something. The end they could smell. They wanted to get there. So he said, we're trying to understand memory. So we divided their brain into 16 lobes, eight on each side. And we would scramble one and let him go. And he'd go through. We'd scramble two. And he'd run through to get, you know, we scramble. He said, we found out we could scramble 13 of the 16. And they could still get through the maze and find what they smelled. You can do whatever you want with that. I'm not particularly sure. <laughs> but Jesus wanted them <clears throat> to smell it, to see it, and to hear it. It was in their minds as they move forward from this place. And he says, Father, I'm just saying this out loud for their sakes. I know you always hear me. But I'm saying it because I want them to know also that you always hear me. He wanted them to know it, and he wants you and I to know it, because it says he ever liveth and maketh intercession for the saints, and that his Father, whose right hand he is at, always hears him. That's what Jesus is telling us. Look, and, you know, when Christ is, is raised from the dead, when he ascends to heaven, he, heaven doesn't cause any loss in him. His emotions, we have a high priest touched with our infirmities, tempted in every way as we are. When Jesus, the right hand of the Father, prays for us, he still feels, he still, that, that gnawing, that he still weeps, he still, you know, is indignant about what's happening to the human race and the, the, the temptations that would come to us. He's no different. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Father, he tells us here, Father, I'm saying this because I want them and the people of Calvary Chapel to know that you always hear my prayers. I want them to know and I want them to listen. And then it says, he turns around and he screams, Lazarus. And people, 
you know, they never read the chapter. They're going, oh, what is he doing now? You know, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, Lazarus comes hopping out of there. Now, he's not screaming it so Lazarus can hear it. He's been dead four days. And wherever Lazarus is, it ain't there. And Jesus waited till this one was in the tomb for four days. You have Nistam's law. It deals with the way a body breaks down after they die. Any folks that are here that are coroners, um, that particularly working in forensics in the, the law department, there is polar mortis, there is algor mortis, there is rigor mortis, and then there's lipper mortis. The first one, when the person dies, it starts to set in in about four minutes. Because the front of the body turns white, the back starts to darken, there's no blood flow, and there's no oxygen, so color changes. That's the first phase, polar mortis. Algor mortis is when then all of those cells that aren't getting refreshed, they turn to acid and they produce enzymes that begin to eat out the inside of the body from the inside out. Rigor mortis, you know what that is, lucky stiff. You know, rigor mortis is when they, they stiffen up. Usually happens within 12 hours of death, but it only lasts a few hours. Then, it's every, then you're just completely loose again after that. And then, of course, comes the, the liver morris. The, the, the body is breaking down. Understand by the fourth day, his eyeballs had collapsed. He no longer had eyeballs. By the fourth day, his brain had turned to liquid. By the fourth day, his heart had dissolved. It had stopped beating the second he stopped breathing. It had dissolved. By the fourth day, all his neuropathways that helped his muscles coordinate, they were all gone. They were eaten up by enzymes. By the fourth day, everything had disintegrated and the body starts to swell. We, we want to understand this because... When he cries, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus don't have ears that are working. He cries it out loud because he says he wants us to hear and to believe. Because the day is coming when it says the Lord himself is going to descend with a shout. The voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And he's going to call us. You know, some folks have said the reason he cried, Lazarus, come forth, because if he just cried, come forth, the whole cemetery would have emptied out. <laughs> so he's very specific. But Jesus told us in chapter 5, the day is coming when all that are in their graves are going to hear the voice of the Son of God. Soon, soon. <clears throat> you, 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 wait, I got something better for you to clap at. <laughs> you know, the bummer for Lazarus is he's being called back. We will be called forward. He's being called down. We're going to be called up. He comes back to his human frame and has got to die again. You and I, when we get raptured, it's done. We got the, our body shall be fashioned like unto his glorious body, and we will be done. We will stand glorified in heaven, never to come back. And you can ask Laz, what was it like doing this twice? You know. <clears throat> And where was Lazarus as this is taking place? Paul said he saw things. He was caught up to see things in the third heaven. And he said they were unspeakable. 
He said, no sense trying to put it in human language. Well, Lazarus, wherever Paul was, was there for four days. John was alive on Patmos when he received his vision. Lazarus is not on Patmos. He's in glory for four days. Did he talk to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did he sit with Moses? He saw Jehovah, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the cherubim, the sapphire pavement around the throne, the sea of glass. Imagine voices incredible all around him, worshiping angels innumerable. Can you imagine being in that? Just being there, being in that. And then somebody taps him on the shoulder, <laughs> looks over, and some angel says, the master has need of you. What? <laughs> he calleth for thee. He has need of you. And you have to understand, <clears throat> Lazarus, more than any man probably that ever lived, understands the Savior. In the next chapter, he's sitting at the table with Mary and Martha. Martha's just working, whistling while she works, not griping anymore. Because when your brother rises from the dead, it changes you. <laughs> Mary's pouring out, you know, her alabaster box of ointment on Jesus' feet. We never hear a word from Lazarus. He's sitting silent at the table, looking across, realizing what I saw. And what I had to leave to come back into this world is incomparable to you, the Lord of glory, and the sacrifice you've had to make to put on human flesh and come walk in this world. The disparity between those two positions in your nature and your being, mine isn't even comparable. It's not even an inch to a mile. It's not it's immeasurable. And he would know, looking at Jesus, sitting at that table, Mary's anointing him for his burial. He, you know, so when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, eyeballs reappear in the sockets. This is the creator speaking. A heart that had dissolved starts beating in his chest. All the arteries and veins open up. The neuropathways immediately show up to where they're supposed to be. His brain turns from liquid back to solid again. You have to imagine what happened when he says, Lazarus, come forth. He calls him back to life. In this world, though, but, you know, Lazarus probably thought of him if he was willing to make the sacrifice to come here. Lord, my sacrifice is nothing to come back. And to do your bidding. And it tells us then that he comes hopping out of the tomb. He that was dead came forth, bound hand, got up faster than I normally do in the morning. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about <clears throat> with a napkin. We find that with Jesus also on the resurrection morning. And then Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Many of the Jews therefore believed. We don't have a single record of reunion. What was it like 
for Mary and Martha to see him come jumping out of there? Were they the first of a number of hands on him to unwrap him? Probably kept the takrakim around his waist, but to take off the things that bound him. Martha probably said, well, she finally said something. She said, this is great, but would you take a bath before we, you know, <laughs> Martha? What was it like for them to walk home together? They had walked in that direction and carried his dead body four days earlier. Now they're walking home together. What was it like for them to sit at the table that night together? What was that like? You need to think about it. Because it's going to happen to you. Every loved one that's gone on, every parent, every child, every friend, you are going to sit at the table with them. That's coming. That is coming. Imagine, and Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, and you're going to see Lazarus. He'll be there, Mary, Martha. You know, just imagine. Now it's hard because when there's an empty seat at a table here on Thanksgiving, it's so noticeable. But there's a, a seat that's no longer empty at the master's table. But he cries over our brokenness and our loss. He steps into it with every divine emotion that there is, which more rightly absorbs and perceives human pain and sin. And he weeps over it. His heart is broken. And remarkably then it tells us that some of those that were there and saw this believed and some of them went and told on him, tattletales. They went to the Pharisees and said, this guy's raising people from the dead now. He's crossed the line, you know. <clears throat> Just imagine. Because, you know, people always say, if I could see, if I could see that, well, not only could they see it, they could still smell it. They could hear it. Father, I'm doing this. You know, it's not by Beelzebub. It's not by anything. They heard him say, Father, do it so they know that you're with me and that you've sent me. And Lazarus comes jumping out of there. That image was in their mind for the rest of their lives. Just as the things that God through his word and his spirit have implanted in us that will be there for the rest of our lives. Until we stand together. You know, he's going to tell Thomas, Thomas, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who believe without seeing there is a particular blessing that you and I have that none of the apostles had because they saw. And I know we would love to be flipped into their position and be eyewitnesses. I won't argue that. It'd be amazing. But there are things in my life that Peter and John will never have, and in yours as well. Heaven will tell the story of those things. If you're here this morning and your heart is broken and you're mourning, you've lost someone not too recent or even someone in a, in a good while in the past and you still get ambushed and the tears still come, you don't weep alone. Jesus has put on our skin and he's felt our pain. Thirst and hunger and betrayal. And he weeps with those who weep. He mourns with those who mourn. 
And this morning, you're not doing that alone. He tells us every tear we shed is recorded and kept in a bottle. Psalm 56. So let's stand. Let's pray together. I would encourage you, if you don't know Christ, he's also weeping in your regard. If you are a despiser or a rejecter, Jesus is not mad at you. You know, some people portray God as he's up there, you know, you know, with a gun in his hand, dance. No, he's up in heaven weeping. There's an image bearer who's heard the truth. They were in church on Sunday morning. They heard the truth about my love and about my power, and they refused to come. They still determined to be a despiser and a rejecter. He's weeping over you as well. But that can all change in a moment. When we sing this last song, if you know today, you don't know where you're going when you die. You can know before you leave here. Let's sing this last song. And if you want to be saved today, I'm going to encourage you to get out of your pew. The person that brought you, they'll come with you. Come on down, stand here. We want to pray with you. We want to give you a Bible, some literature to read. We don't want your email. We don't want your phone number. We want nothing from you, but we do, we do want everything for you. And if you've never turned to Christ, look, this thing is put in front of us in such a way that the tangibleness and historical accuracy of it can't be stolen away. The miracle of it can't be lessened. And the Bible says he's going to descend for us at a point in time with a shout and somehow call all of our names at one time and we're out of here. If you're here this morning, you despise him, you despise hearing that, you will believe sooner or later. And when we're gone, you can help yourself to the bookstore you really want to get caught up on some things. But I would encourage you this morning, if you don't know Christ, just to come. We all came that way, to, to give your life to him. Let him forgive you. Let him give you the hope of an eternal future. You come. Don't die in your sin. It breaks his heart. He loves you. Lord, we put these things before you, Lord. We certainly pray for those mourning among us, the most broken, the Marys and the Marthas that there have been through countless ages, Lord. The husbands without a wife, or a, the kids without a dad, Lord. Whatever it is, you look around this room, you see all of that, Lord. And we believe your heart is broken, you're troubled, you're indignant about it, Lord. There are tears in your eyes. And Lord, certainly we pray for those here that have always just turned away, Lord, that today would be a day different from all of those other days. By the work of your spirit, Lord, we pray today they would turn to you and not away from you, Lord. Somehow they would see your love and your compassion and your ability to raise the dead. Lord, let them turn to you this day for forgiveness. Bring them forward, Lord, that we can pray. With them you add to the church daily such as should be saved. We trust you, Lord Jesus, in this work. We put it before you. We pray in your name. Amen.